This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Taking a look at the issues surrounding the health and well-being of our LGBTIQ plus communities. This is Well, 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 brought to you by the team from Thorn Harbour Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. You're listening to Well, 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 where we dive into the issues impacting and interwoven into the health and well-being of our gender, sex, and sexually diverse communities. Recording and broadcasting from the Joy Studios at the Victorian Pride Centre on Boon Country. Uh, this week on Well, 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 and actually for the month of July, we are celebrating Thorn Harbor Health's 40th anniversary, but talking about you know the health and well-being and that legacy of advocacy that f- informed a lot of the models that we use today. So... This episode is actually just part of the beginning of a series. And for those of you that have listened to the show before, back on the 35th when Thorn Harbor Health became Thorn Harbor Health, uh, transitioned from the Victorian AIDS Council, we had done the VAC Legacy Series or VAC Legacy Series. If you haven't listened to that, by all means, after today's episode, feel free to check that out, um, where I talked to a range of people and we sort of told that origin story for the community organization when it formed back in 1983. This time around, we're doing it a little bit differently and we're going to sit down and do a bit of longer interview with a lot of those legends. So you'll have heard of some of these people from some of these people before and a couple that you may not have heard of heard of or from in the last time around. This is our Community Living Legends series and we're going to celebrate that legacy of both community activism and really, you know, what came out of it. David Menadu is returning. A lot of you that have listened to the show before will have heard from David. We most recently talked to him for our World AIDS Day episode. David is a long-standing advocate for people living with HIV and is one of the first people in Australia to be kind of a, in the public eye and media as someone living with HIV back in the 1980s. So in addition to the VAC Legacy series, if you're all playing at home and want to add another thing to your listening uh, list, by all means, check out our World AIDS Day episode that we did on the 1st of December 2022. And you can hear that in-depth with a bit more of David's Menadu's background. But for this episode, we'll really be focusing on his role in that community organization and establishing groups for people living with HIV. That's all coming up on this week's show. So let's get right into it. You're getting well, well, well with the team from Thorn Harbor Health. So it's been a little while since we had you on for World AIDS Day, but we've kind of come to another big milestone, which is the 40th anniversary of, yes. you know, the formation of what was then the Victorian AIDS Action Committee, now mm. Thorn Harbor Health. Mm. I want to take a look back to just before that formation, but that first meeting at the dental hospital in June Mm. of 1983, having attended that first meeting on really the emerging AIDS epidemic, because that's what we were largely talking about Mm -hmm. at that time, as opposed to HIV. Can you recall what was going through your mind at that meeting? Um, I think, Caleb, it might surprise people. But in those days, the doctors ruled, you know, the seven or eight doctors that were on the panel you know, we, we kind of worshipped in a way. We we believed in everything that came out of their mouths because, you know, the consumer health movement was not really advanced at that stage. In fact, HIV was to make a big uh, impression on community health itself, uh, taking some control and, you know, with doctors, not against them or anything. So... What what was said by the doctors on that panel was very important to hear, but they didn't have much to say. The problem was it was even early days in 83, they were working on uh, any news from San Francisco or New York, 
they had some idea of the deaths, so they knew it was a very serious problem, but they really didn't know exactly how it was transmitted, uh, obviously sexually and also drug use, but there were other uh, question marks like could you catch it from sort of casual uh, transmission if you touch someone's blood? So, you know, it wasn't really clear at the end of that night how you could or couldn't avoid HIV, really specifically. I'm, I'm saying there were some broad ideas. The difficulty with that was a lot of us um, thought, well, look, it's over in America, it's not here yet. Why should I worry? I mean, I didn't know I was positive at that stage, and I probably was, uh, because the test wasn't available till 84, of course. Uh, so there was, I think, a sort of relaxed feel, oh, this is an American problem, it's not really with us yet. Although we had heard of a couple of people in Melbourne that had picked up the virus, and in most cases they'd been spending time in America. Mm. But, of course, the logic there was, well, if those people have been spending time in America and they've come back here, then, you know, I don't mean to be unkind, but they've brought the virus with them. Yep. And they've probably had sexual relations, and so it is spreading in our community, and it took us a while to work that out. So when are you diagnosed with HIV in this timeline? In the first uh, uh, tranche of tests, which was at the end of uh, 84, I think November 84. Uh, And at that stage, my doctor had been monitoring uh, because I wasn't very well. I was starting to get a few little titchy things and my T-cell count initially was 900, which is quite healthy. Yep. So I wasn't overly worried, but we decided the HIV test was in order, and sure enough, I came back positive. And I, I know this will sound weird, but I didn't, I wasn't overly concerned. It was like my doctor seemed to think I only had a one in 10 chance of actually developing an AIDS illness. Now, that, of course, proved to be wrong. As the 80s unfolded, it was more likely there'd be nine out of 10 people would get AIDS if not more. So I I was sort of um, in a a no man, sort of a a foolish man's land for a little while thinking, oh, I'm going to be fine and, you know, keep going on with my life as normal because I had a good job and lots of friends. But then as the 80s unfolded, you realised your sex life was going to be majorly impacted because you faced a real ethical dilemma if you were to have sex with someone you knew you were positive, you knew you could transmit it sexually, did you tell them? And of course the AIDS Council, and I have to say the Victorian AIDS Council was more proactive in this area than probably anywhere else in the country, were talking about safe sex quite early on. I really respect them for that. So the idea of having condoms for sex was not out of the question. Uh, Pretty hard for gay men to adopt that at that stage. But the idea of you having sex with somebody and not telling them you're HIV positive was a real ethical dilemma for me and others. Do you think that some people still struggle with that even today? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And even though we know that most, most people, well, people on treatments are not going to spread the virus in most cases, like 99.9%. It still is an issue that some people think, oh, gosh, I couldn't cope with the thought of 
I could possibly in the smallest chance get HIV. I, therefore, I'm not going to have sex with that person. I, I do think it's still an issue, yes, uh, because people saw the devastation of the AIDS period and they obviously didn't want to share that but or, or get it themselves. I completely get why, but I would like to think that people have moved on a lot more and, you know, I find, not that I have sex outside my relationship these days, uh, <laughs> but even my relationship, my partner is negative and he's quite happy with the fact that we can have sex with our condoms because, he, you know, well, the, the blood tests show he's not going to get it. Yep. And uh, it's a whole different ball game now, but in the... Until we got treatments, and remember, we didn't get treatments until the late 80s, and even then, they weren't good treatments. Yeah. You know, I'm suffering today because uh, of the AZT I took in the late 80s. I think it was the first drug available, probably 88, maybe. And it stripped all the muscle off my arms and legs. And today, you know, I have a lot of trouble with my walking, uh, quite a few years on, I'm pretty pleased that I'm still here, but that damage was done in a time when there were no treatments or inferior treatments. Well, and even after the 80s and once we get past AIDS and and we start to get to combination therapy, for a long time, the line was kind of people living with HIV were kind of told to take time to consider whether or not when you start treatment, because it's, it is like once you start, it's a lifelong commitment. But today there's a push to get people on treatment straight away because, you know, we've kind of had some research to suggest the sooner you start treatment, the better long-term health outcomes. And of course, treatment today is a lot, um, a lot better <laughs> than it was in those early years. How do you feel about that evolution to where we're at now versus like you said, you know, kind of the, pretty horrific experiences of those early treatments. Well, Caleb, I'm hugely relieved. Mm. I mean, of course, people should take it as soon as possible and certainly take it to prevent getting it, like the PrEP meds, which is pretty much the same as the drug you're going to take if you have it too, to some degree. It might be slightly different. I really endorse uh, early treatment. I, I think... For a while there in the 90s, I do understand why people were reluctant to take the treatments. They saw what they were doing to me, you know, losing all my weight, uh, getting sick anyway. They obviously weren't effective. And as you say, it wasn't until 96 with the protease inhibitors that we had effective treatment. And they saved my life. I was on the way out, no question. Five AIDS-defining illnesses. So those early treatments did virtually no good. Mm. And they did a lot of harm because a lot of the inflammation is still in my body. We forget that. The long-term survivors have had to live with the damage that was done when there were no or infective treatment, no effective treatments. So today, to have good treatments that have got hardly any side effects, you know, the, 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 as soon as you get uh, HIV, it starts doing damage to your body. So you really should be doing something about it as quickly as you can if you want to save your health in the long term. Going back to that time, and, and during the World AIDS episode, we talked about this a little bit. So um, 
we might kind of zoom up. If, fast forward a little bit. People can catch up if they want to listen to that episode of Well, Well, Well. But, you know, there have been a number of groups and organizations over the years supporting people living with HIV here in Victoria and, of course, more broadly. And on that World AIDS Day episode, you talked about Melbourne Positive Friends. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering, you know, I wanted to ask you specifically about the formation of PLHA, Victoria, so people living with, uh, or it was PLWA, wasn't it? P- yeah, PLWHA, it's a oh, ma- bit go. of a mouthful. <laughs> Which was people living with HIV and AIDS, Victoria. How did that organization come about? And and I guess the, the controversial part, why was it so contentious that it eventually f- split away from mm. the then Victorian mm. AIDS Council? Yes, it was a program of the Victorian AIDS Council when we set it up. Um. 1988 was a very seminal year uh, for the PLWHA movement. In a sense, it wasn't really there until around that period because people didn't want to come out. The stigma about being positive in the 80s was so so intense. People losing their jobs, their families, because people didn't know how it was transmitted. So people were really scared of us. So admitting you were HIV positive in that, that period of the 80s was extremely, uh, well, the word, I was going to use the word toxic. It had potentially toxic results. So people didn't do it. So it was all secret. There were plenty of people. But in 1988, that barrier was broken when all these positive people came up on the stage at the end of the uh, homosexual conference. Oh, no, it was the AIDS conference, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was a national national yeah. AIDS conference in Hobart in 1988. I think July. I'm not sure. I wasn't able. To, I wasn't there because I was actually sick. But uh, I was starting to get, you know, AIDS illness. Well, the beginnings of AIDS illnesses. And they got up and said, "Look, we're positive." And it was quite a shock to some people in the room who didn't know their mates were positive. <laughs> Here they were making a statement, and that gave energy to the movement. And when those people came back, it was quite clear we needed to start talking about establishing a PLWHA movement. Uh, and it was sort of in, in ACT UP was sort of starting to, to get a, a bit of a move on as well. You know, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which was a sort of activist base, not necessarily positive people, but a lot of positive people. And others, their allies, getting out there and trying to get governments to start funding HIV. It's incredible to think now that HIV didn't get a hell of a lot of government funding until that period. Mm. Not not massive amounts. A lot of it was fundraised from the community. And we needed, you know, major health uh, initiatives from, well, Neil Blewett, who was a good health minister, needed to be told, and, and I have to say some of that activism really worked, and having a PLWHA movement that the governments could talk to, people actually with the virus to say, look, this is our experience, added that little extra dimension to what the AIDS Council were doing anyway. So when you say we split off, I suppose it's inevitable at times uh, that we friction within an organisation. You have the prevention people doing their bit, And that was the main focus of the AIDS Council, trying to stop people getting sick. But of course, there were always people like me who were unwell, but, you know, not too bad. Uh, But there was also the people who were very unwell who were being cared for. And that was the AIDS Council's other focus. So care and prevention. The people like myself in the middle, 
didn't really have a lot of um, peer support, and we needed that. There was peer support, but it was for the people being prevented from getting HIV. So when we decided to get together, and Melbourne Positive Friends, as you said, was my way with my friends of establishing a peer support where we were able to unleash our fears about you know, being rejected by partners and family and all that stuff and, and, and get our heads together. So quite a number of those people also contributed to the PLWHA movement because we knew there was strength in numbers. We knew that... Once you got together, you can change the world. And it sounds a bit dramatic, but in a sense, you can change people's perceptions of people with HIV, which is what we did when PLWHA started appearing in the media. And this this little um, person here was doing some of that because I was called upon as president, uh, one of the early presidents. There was a couple before me. Um, uh, I, I was called upon to try and save uh, a house we had or a, basically a positive living centre we were trying to get in Caulfield um, accepted by the council and the, uh, the council had rejected it because, you know, the old story about people with HIV, they're going to throw needles over the fence and, you know, we can't... Who'd want to live next to people with AIDS? You know, that sort of dram dramatic stuff. And... The only way we thought we're ever going to get attention is if we go to the media and who's going to do it? And, you know, I've got this lovely woman called Joan Golding who some members will remember what a fantastic woman she was in showing leadership and looking after her own son had died from AIDS in the mid-'80s and she wanted to help and so she was quite happy to go uh, to this particular press conference we held at this venue, and I was the other. I was the positive person. The two of us took on the Age, the SBS, uh, a whole range of media. And the point is, um, we we got media attention like you wouldn't believe. And all of a sudden, uh, the concept of people living with AIDS being relatively normal human beings was out there. And it, it, we weren't all dying and some of us wanted to live and some of us wanted to be given a real chance to live with some better treatments along the way. Yeah, and I and I encourage people too to go back and listen to the episode we did in World AIDS Day because you tell the yeah, extended sorry, version I'm, of that I'm repeating story. it all, aren't I? No, yeah. no, no, quite yeah. all right. Um, you are listening to Well, 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 and we're sitting down and chatting to chatting to the legendary David Menado here on Well, Well, Well on Joy and the Community Radio Network. From HIV to COVID nineteen, STIs, and everything in between, you're listening to Well, Well, Well on Joy and the Community Radio Network. We're continuing the conversation with David Menadou talking about looking back on 40 years of the Victorian AIDS Council, now Thorn Harbor Health. David, the HIV landscape has changed dramatically in the past four decades. And you touched on this before, but many of the people who lived through the the kind of the darker era of it, it comes with significant trauma, I guess yeah. is fair to say. Do you think that trauma creates a barrier of connection between those who lived through the height of that pandemic and were diagnosed maybe in the 80s, like yourself, versus people who are newly diagnosed with HIV today, where the landscape is so different and they maybe don't even, it's hard to grasp things like, you know, the hysteria um, of the 80s and I guess even early 90s. 
Yes, you can't generalise about all people with HIV who are recently diagnosed, but but my experience is this incredible respect for the fact that we stood up uh, in that early period because people got a sense of what the stigma's like. Because even now when people are diagnosed, they feel a sense of stigma. They, they, they're crossed with themselves because they've become HIV positive or, you know, someone lied to them about their status or whatever. You know, this, it's quite a traumatic period even today. So people, I hope, get counselling or find a peer support group or find other positive people that will give them a bit of um, support because it's terribly important um, to just get your head around the fact that you're really not a threat to anyone your health's probably going to last a normal lifespan, like as if you didn't have HIV to some degree, as long as you take your treatments and you have a good relationship with your doctor. So, look, I believe there's a lot of respect between the generations. You know, I've done a a couple of interviews with someone from a a younger man who, who really showed me that they appreciate what we have done on their behalf and now some of the treatments that we fought for in those days are, are making their lives normal. So I, I think quite the opposite. I don't know that it's true for HIV-negative gay men as much. I think they think uh, less about the HIV, understandably, because it hasn't affected them personally very much. Although I do think it's true that Quite a lot of HIV negative men think, well, what if I became positive? And they're doing their best to make sure they don't by taking PrEP and doing those sort of things. And I hope they keep that up. With all that in mind, you know, because I know there's a lot of people that, as I said before, like I've, that we've spoken to before on the show, that I've spoken through my work at Thorn Harbor, that, you know, do sort of carry some of that trauma with them. But I have to say, you know, I've, you know, you and I have sat down on a few occasions in studio and you seem to have weathered the storm quite successfully. What do you think has been that contributing fact, what factor or factors to your resilience? Can I say something corny and say it's love? Okay. It's love and it's friendship. Look, if I didn't receive love from my family in particular in the 80s when I came out as positive and I had to tell them, you know, before that press conference I was telling you about with Joan Golding, I had to ring my mum up and say, look, mum, I know you suspect something's wrong. I do have HIV and I'm going to be on the, in the media. And mind you, I didn't make Shepherd and thank God. In those <laughs> days it would have, in these days it would have, but those days she wouldn't have seen it anyway. But it was important and look, I spent a lot of time with her, briefing her about what it meant. And so it, it, that, that sort of trauma was was not as bad for me because I saw what happened to some of my friends, in Melbourne Positive Friends, the number of families who didn't want to know them. I was shocked. I felt like saying, do you really love your, your child if you're going to re- respond like that? I kind of get it. It's all about what the neighbours think. But, you know, that's it's a terribly mean sort of spirited thing that you would do that to a member of your family. But it's also with friends. You know, I had to very carefully explain to my friends and the people I worked with, who I loved very much, in the, what was going on. And, look, they were intelligent people. They did their research. They knew there wasn't a risk. I didn't feel that 
horrible sense of stigma that a lot of my friends have talked about because I was treated well. And, you know, why is that? I was just lucky. I had intelligent friends. I had loving friends and loving family. And, look, you can't do without that. If you're lucky enough to have those things, well, value them. That's beautiful. There is some speculation that Melbourne and perhaps Victoria or Australia more broadly could be one of the few places in the world to see what they're calling the virtual elimination of new HIV transmissions. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm very happy, of course. (laughs) Who'd want to go through the trauma we've been through? Awful, Caleb. Just totally changed my life. I know I probably got a little bit of... What's the word? I want to say the word notoriety, and it's probably not quite what I'm thinking. I I have had a public sort of uh, profile that I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. But truly, you know, what I'm living through now uh, with the sort of, you know, I've got five different specialists I go to all the time, and yesterday I had a fall. And I think this is all because of what happened in the 80s, really, the, the, loss, the loss of muscle from AZT and HIV. And now in my 70s, I'm amazed I'm here, but I'm suffering a bit because it's, you know, I just don't have the strength that some of my fellow 70-year-olds have. Mind you, there's a few 60-year-olds I know that are just as weak as me, but, you know, it's sort of like, Run of the mill, you, you, you're lucky with what you've got, but you also have a few drawbacks. David, I just want to kind of set the scene for folks that maybe, you know, we know that stigma, HIV stigma and discrimination, there's still, still an issue today. But I guess the scale of how bad it was at the height of the epidemic And at that point, I guess we're really talking AIDS hysteria more than HIV because that wasn't sort of, we weren't talking about people living with HIV or there was more around, you know, these AIDS-defining illnesses at that time. You know, I I know you were connected to Melbourne um, Positive Friends and you're part of other peer support groups. How bad was it? Look, I I think I've mentioned this before, but I'll, I'll repeat it. Melbourne Positive Friends had 33 people in the time we were in existence from 96 to, sorry, 86 to 93. At the end of 93, we only had four people left. Now, how do you survive all your close friends, and they were close friends by then, dying? You know, going to all their funerals, and that was the experience for a lot of us. It was, well, every funeral was, am I going to be next? You know, seeing the relatives crying and seeing them lose their son or daughter, uh, it, it it was so traumatic and we're all, every new drug that came along presented this hope and it was always usually dashed. It was sort of like you can see why some people want to take their own lives. It sounds dramatic to say that and I know people who did but um, the point is it didn't seem like there was an end coming and it wasn't really as you said till 90 well end of 95 I was on a trial for the proteos but 96 really was when it really got wide public uh, wide use was when people all of a sudden felt this amazing joy in fact I can remember being a bit manic because the drugs just gave me energy back and I felt, gee, this is what I've been missing. 
You know, you're always depressed, hardly any T cells, no energy to do anything. All of a sudden it's come back. You think, wow, this is a new life. So look, it was bad. And what we've got now is just, for me, it's joy. When I see people who are HIV positive feeling okay and having partners who are HIV negative, including myself, have a normal relationship with no stigma. Uh, and I'm not saying there's no stigma out there. People who, you know, fail to do the education and understand that then, you know, their partners aren't infectious to them. Although there's always one or two people that are not on treatments and don't know they're positive. You have to factor that in. But if you know your partner uh, status and they know you and they know you're undetectable, then I'd say go for it. One of the groups that has kind of international notoriety around uh, getting access to treatments, and even in those early days before we kind of had the more sophisticated treatment and, and combination therapy, is the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power ACT UP. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about ACT UP here in Melbourne? <laughs> and, you know, there is a divide between ACT up seemed to be a bit more activist. They weren't necessarily as cooperative with the government as organizations like the AIDS Council. Mm. What, what, what was well, it like? Well, in, well, you know? well, the ACT UP, uh, the premise of ACT UP was that they did things to get public attention and also to almost embarrass the government. So uh, things that happened on parliament steps or in front of politicians or for the media were part of the deal. Whereas I was president of people living with AIDS or, or an office bearer, and, and we couldn't do that because we had to sit next to the minister. I mean, we half of us were out there doing those things secretly, like, you know, Keith Harbour, the president, was arrested on Parliament steps doing it. And, and you know, it wasn't as if the health minister didn't know what was going on. But we were we had to have a sort of veneer of respectability as PLWHA as a government, you know, AIDS Council program and then as you said, as our own program later on. But to to be the activist group, you had to be rat bags. You you had to basically push some fairly uncomfortable facts in front of people so that they realised how serious this was. And sometimes they probably crossed the line and did a few things that damaged property and offended people. And, you know, in those days, the 80s, were still a bit sensitive about sex and, you know, talking about gay sex in particular. And, you know, probably ACT UP was necessary to, to break some of those taboos. And, you know, the people who were, were watching were taking note even though they thought, oh, it's those rat bags, the nice people at PLWHA wouldn't do that, which is not true. Would you think, I mean, with that in mind, that you have like these rat bags, which I love that you say rat bags because my partner and I use that term every now and then. But um, because you've got the rat bags of ACT UP who seem like, oh, you don't, you don't want to be affiliated with them. Did that sort of grease the wheels in a way that made it easier for people to work with you? Because it was like, okay, you know what? Actually, let's, you know. So no, it was sort of no question. That is exactly what I found. Uh, and I didn't have a profile with ACT UP. I mean, I did do some things. But I found it much easier for me to go 
to state parliament and also federal parliament, because I was also involved with the National Association at that stage, uh, when we had a sort of, at least veneer, that we were uh, capable of delivering uh, services and advocacy, but without, uh, you know, the, the politicians regretting it. Mm. Uh, whereas, you know, the ACT UP people were very rarely going to actually be sitting around a table with the health minister. I think they may have once or twice, but as a general rule, it was the respectable people who did that. Do you think there is still a role for that dynamic of having that more incendiary street activism versus, you know, those kind of more composed, governed organizations that that can go into the halls of, you know, bureaucrats and policy makers. Do you think there's still a place for that or is it, you know? Oh, well, I'd never say you can't be able to protest. There's always going to be injustices in society. So, you know, I'm thinking of some of the things that happen in the Pride March sometimes. I don't always agree with them, but there's usually a little protest group somewhere in the Pride March. People trying to make their point about something, we may or may not agree with it, but they've got a right to do it. And I would never uh, condemn that because we were really formed on the basis of, as you say, being rat bags. <laughs> I'm loving that. This is now the rat bag series. It's no longer the Community <laughs> Legends series. It's just a, a showcase of various rat bags. I love that. I'm asking everyone the same question towards the end of their interview. In the spirit of the quote, those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. What lesson or piece of wisdom from our past and our legacy of 40 years do you think our communities today should keep in mind going into the future? Well, to answer your question, just think about what we've been through with the COVID uh, experience. You know, a, a lot of us felt like it was HIV, you know, Mark II, because the stigma was there, the fear was there, you know, you, you could walk into a room and if you didn't have a mask on or whatever, in a way that's sort of the same thing. If you didn't have a condom on when you had sex last night, what was the risk that you were going to be carrying around for the day? That level of stress. So don't underestimate uh, the need for prevention and care uh, and to look after your friends. It's still around HIV and, of course, the vestiges of are still here. People are still becoming positive. We still need the AIDS Council. We still need the resources of people living with AIDS movement. Just so that people are aware of what's come before and what will come in the future, because it won't go away any time soon, but let's hope. You're talking about Melbourne getting rid of HIV. That would be the best thing ever. But I fail to see that it's going to happen overnight. It'll take another 10 years, probably, I reckon. Fair enough. Well, look, David, thank you so much for joining us yet again on Well, Well, Well uh, here on Joy and the Community Radio Network. You're getting Well, Well, Well with the team from Thorn Harbour Health. That has been another episode of Well, Well, Well. And thank you to this week's guest. In fact, I want to thank all of the guests that you're going to hear from in July because I feel it's an honor and a privilege to be able to talk to these community living legends and to kind of tap into that history because I think so much of what they've gone through and so many of the lessons they have to share with us are totally applicable today. And so hopefully you got that as well. Now, if you missed any part of this episode or want to listen to previous episodes like the VAC Legacy series that I mentioned at the start of the show, go to joy.org.au slash well, 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 where you can catch up on this episode and previous episodes of well, well, well. Now, if you have questions or suggestions, things we should be talking about on the show, email us at well, well, well at joy.org.au. 
Now that's all for this week's show. Again, thank you to my guests. Thanks for listening. Look after yourself and those around you. This has been another episode of Well, Well, Well here on Joy in the Community Radio Network. Thanks for listening to Well, 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 supported by Thorn Harbor Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. For more LGBTIQ plus health and well-being and much more, check out Thorn Harbor on social media at Thorn Harbor or via the website thornharbor.org. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.